So I'm reaching down into the mailbag. I've got a question. Um, as you know, we, we don't get mail the old-timey way. Very often, we do occasionally. So this is an email. I'm reaching down into my email bag, is what I will say. And it's from Jeff, and I know who Jeff is, so thanks for reaching out, Jeff. But Jeff said, I have a question about ceiling heights. And I'm going to break this down in, in a couple of answers, probably a couple of podcasts. So um, you may have to come back for the rest of the answer. But uh, let me read this to you. He says, I have a subject in an old warehouse turned condo. The unit was a one bedroom, one bath, had really tall ceilings. The owner has built a loft that is used as a bedroom and an additional bathroom. The issue is the ceiling in the loft is six feet, two inches with a large beam that runs right down the middle of that room. Under that beam, it's only five feet clearance. What are your thoughts? I believe that Fannie Mae only requires five feet under beams, but would you consider this functional obsolescence? I mean, I have to duck under it, and I am short. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff, for your email question. Uh, my apologies for the delay in getting back to you, but you know, I'm, I'll go ahead and break this down to a podcast on it as well. So uh, you guys stick around, come, come on back, and we'll break down Jeff's question. Uh, with this podcast, I want to I tune in to the functional obsolescence question part, and then probably in another podcast, we'll address the ceiling height, which many of you might know that answer anyway. So come on back and let's dive in. Hi, this is Brian Reynolds. You're listening to the Appraisal Update Podcast, brought to you as always by Appraiser eLearning. If you had need some education, go check out Appraiser eLearning. We've got more courses coming around the corner. In fact, we just taught our uh, brand new course, a virtual course, uh, was well received, had a good good class size, uh, good participants. That's called the Appraiser's Guide to Appraisal Inspections. We talk about hybrids and bifurcated. And we talk about the traditional appraisal inspection as well. So if you need some CE, check that out. We've got some other courses coming up, uh, an appraiser's guide to the income approach. And, you know, I, I, I sold that book out, but when I was uh, in Texas, <laughs> no one was buying that. So I had to get up and say, hey guys, just to let you know, this is, this is residential. I mean, there's a little commercial stuff in there too, but are you a residential appraiser who has ever appraised a house that's rented? Well, then we're going to talk through that. Uh, do you do two to four families? Do you do a com competitive rent survey or maybe that operating income statement? We're going to talk about contract versus contract rent versus market rent and GRMs versus GIMs and vacancy rates and all that good stuff. So anyway, if you need some uh, CE credit, jump on over to appraiserelearning.com check out all our offerings and uh, we uh, we would love to have you take a class and let us know what you think. If there's any type of curriculum or classes that you would like to see us develop, please reach out to Ben and let him know and we'll try and make that happen. Uh, we've got a lot of new exciting things coming up just around the corner. But let's just jump it right into Jeff's question and, and I'm going to ignore the ceiling height part of the question right now. And I'm going to tackle 
the obsolescence question first, okay? Because he, he's asking me, uh, do I think because of this lower ceiling height and, and then the beam, which you got to kind of <laughs> crawl under or at least duck under, uh, is this creating an environment that we would classify it as functional obsolescence? Man, that, that sounds so authoritative, you know, an authoritative type language, isn't it? Um, so let's talk about that. And as my listener, I, I want to pose this back to you for just a quick uh, minute. What What is functional obsolescence? Or let me, let me rephrase this. What is obsolescence period and why do we call it that why do we call functional obsolescence and external obsolescence or sometimes maybe you'll hear referred to as economic obsolescence because that that's a that's a form of external as well isn't it we agree that these are all forms of depreciation but physical you know we forgot about that one physical we don't call that obsolescence why why do we call physical, as far, as far as the physical depreciation, why do we call that physical deterioration? Why don't, you know, if we're going to call functional obsolescence and we're going to call external obsolescence, and if you use the term economic obsolescence, why don't we call it physical obsolescence? Who can answer that for? Well, physical is the normal wear and tear, right? It's the wearing out or maybe the aggressive wear and tear if you're hard on the house. Uh, but, but tangible things, physical things, most physical things with time are going to wear out. You know, they have wear and tear. Um, and so that's why we're saying it's deteriorating the windows over time. I just replaced some windows in a, in a house we bought. Uh, you know, they were the, oh, they were the old uh, windows that had the weights and the cords and the sashes, right? And it was a counterbalance system. Um, and they don't use those anymore. So over time, many of those windows in older houses that have the counterweights, uh, the ropes or the cords or cables, whatever you want to call them, will wear out. They'll disintegrate. They'll, they'll break. And what's happening is the weight's not, the counterweight's not moving now when you raise that window because the rope broke. And the weight is at the bottom of the sash. So what happens is in those instances, when you raise that window, it doesn't stay up. <laughs> If you raise that window and let go, it whew, comes right down like a guillotine. And that would be a safety safety issue, right? But that's a matter of physical depreciation because the mechanism or part of the mechanism has deteriorated and the rope broke and the weight is not attached to anything to counter the weight of the window as you raise it. That's physical wear and tear. That's the wearing out of something tangible or physical over time. 
functional and external are not really deteriorating. And that's why we use that fancy word called obsolescence. Now, Jeff asked me a question. What do you think? Is this functional obsolescence? And my answer to that is I have no idea. Obsolescence is a, a reaction of market participants. And so some market participants may see that as a poor design, and some might not. And remember, you're charged with analyzing the actions of the typical market participant. Not one or two. I had a I had a student in my class one time. We were we were talking about the sales agreement, and I've always said I, I you know I hate us getting the sales contract. I, I just as soon as not get it. And I've had a, a lively debate on that topic many times over the past couple of decades. And um, you know, people say, well, there's a whole host of reasons why you need it. Yeah, I get it. There there are. For instance, if you were buying this room I'm setting in and you were buying it with a condition that I install hardwood flooring, the appraiser needs to know that because you're not appraising the room that I'm setting in right now with carpet, like it's got, you would want to appraise it subject to the installation of that hardwood flooring. So there are reasons that we need information. But I, I, would, I would say there's one really big reason why you don't need it, and that's because many appraisers will use it as a crutch. They look at that sale price, and it's, it biases them. It, it gives them a target. And please don't do that. And we'll, maybe we'll have another podcast on that because that, that could be a lively debate in and of itself. Um, so, so don't let a piece of paper bias you. My good buddy, uh, uh, Mike, down in Vegas uh, said, you know, it's almost impossible once you hear something to not let that in some fashion be an unconscious bias. And this is what he says. Here's what I want you as my listener to do right now. Whatever you do, wherever you're at, do not think of a zebra. Now, what did you just do? <laughs> you probably thought of a zebra because I put it in your head. It's almost impossible for you not to think of a zebra when I say, whatever you do, don't think of a zebra. Gosh, that's, that's the first thing that pops into your head, right? So uh, Mike Brunson, uh, <laughs> that was very, very good, uh, very good com comment. And that's his, not mine. I'm not going to take credit for it. But let's get back to this. You know, the, the, the person in my live class said, well, who am I? I said, what do you mean? We were talking about the big reason I don't like you getting the contract, right? Because I think that can steer you. And again, don't let that piece of paper steer you. You appraise that property for what you genuinely think the house is worth based on your research and an analysis of that research, irregardless of what that piece of paper says. If it's selling for 200000 and in your heart, after your research and analyses, you feel that that property is worth 600000 then appraise it for 600000 If you think it's worth $50,000 and the purchase price is $200,000, 
appraise it for $50,000. That's your job. That's what you're being asked to do is to develop an independent opinion, not a preconceived. Okay. And so this student in mind said, well, who am I? I said, excuse me. He said, well, who am I? He said, I got a willing buyer. I got a willing seller. They're both well-informed. They have a meeting of the minds. They come to an agreement. They decide on a price. Who am I to question that? And I walked right over to him and I said, you, my friend, you are the valuation expert. That's who you are. Why are you putting more credence in the actions of one market participant, in this case, the buyer, when your job requires you to analyze the actions of the typical market participant? I mean, that's why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have at least three columns for three comps minimum, right? You don't just put one in there and rely on it. Or you just don't put the subject property in there and rely on that. You analyze several sales. We're trying to analyze the actions of the typical market participant, not the actions of one market participant. My dear friend, George Cox, um, uh, he, uh, he was an appraiser for many, many years. And he, unfortunately, he's passed away now. I miss him dearly. And I always say Clay and I learned more on the front porch of his one-bedroom cabin in the middle of the woods in Ohio County, Kentucky, uh, more than we'd ever learned in any class or textbook. He was a wealth of knowledge, uh, probably, uh, probably the best appraiser in the region, uh, if not the best, which, which I would challenge that. He was certainly up there as one of the best. Um, but, uh, but, oh, George, uh, you know, we learned a lot from him and he. So George would, George would, George would say, you know why I buy a house? And so guys, this is a true story. I love telling true stories. True stories are better than anything I could possibly ever make up. So most of the stories I give are true. Um, you know why Mr. Cox bought a house? He did not buy a house because it was in a particular school district. Do some people buy houses because they're in a particular school district? You better believe they do. Do some people buy houses because they're in a particular subdivision? Absolutely. Here's why George Cox bought a house. If Miss Alice's dining room furniture wouldn't fit in the dining room, they didn't buy the house. <laughs> now, is, is George, you know, is, is he a typical buyer? Probably not. But if we go back to that student, I think he was in Kansas City. Who am I? Who am I? You're the valuation expert. You're going to rely on the actions of one market. What if it was George in that case? Who's paying a premium for the house just because Miss Alice's dining room furniture happens to fit in this one? They got tired of looking. <laughs> They got tired of looking because it wouldn't fit in all the others. He finally finds one and he's willing to pay more. And so if you're relying on that one market participants, it's skewing what would happen from a typical market participants view. So be careful with that. 
So Jeff, back to his question, he asked me about functional obsolescence. I don't have a clue. Functional obsolescence is viewed through the eyes of the market participant. So you got to analyze what's going on in your market. When we talk about functional, we're talking about uh, possibly a, a poor floor plan design. Maybe you have to go to, through one bedroom to get to another bedroom, or you got to go through a bedroom to get to the only bathroom, right? Um, maybe it's a super adequacy. Maybe there's it's a five-bedroom home with one bathroom. I did one of those one time. Maybe it's a one-bedroom house in a market that expects two to three-bedroom homes. You know, there could be a whole host of examples here. Maybe it's a galley kitchen. Many years ago, people would buy these old homes, 100-year-old houses, and they'd say, oh, my God, look at all the heat we're, we're losing up there. It's, it's going up to the ceiling. My heat bill is going to be crazy. So let's do this. Let's lower the ceilings. I mean, after all, brand-new houses have eight-foot ceilings in them now. So let's, let's lower our ceiling and not lose all that heat up there. And so they went into many of these old homes and they lowered the ceilings. And then about 10 years later, what happened? <laughs> in the 1990s, people came in. They're like, I love the architectural style of this old home, but I hate the drop tile ceiling they put throughout the house. Wonder if we could open that up and go back to the big 20-foot ceilings, the architectural design. Now you have the high the high efficiency furnaces and triple pane windows if you want, you know. So uh, it's the preference. And guys, this can change overnight. Right now, we have a scarcity of supply in many, many parts of the country, if not most or all parts of the country. So because of the scarcity, normally that galley kitchen would be the last house to sell and probably at a discount because nobody wants a galley kitchen these days. Right. But because we have such a scarcity of supply and we have such a tremendous amount of demand, the buying public may be more willing to accept that galley kitchen now. And so it's not as damaging if it as it would be if we had a lot of competitive units on the on the market at the same time. So it can change and it can change very quickly. Think about the internet. Okay. If you would go to a hotel after the internet came, came out and they didn't have ethernet, they didn't have the RJ 45 cables running through the walls. If you don't have wires in your wall at a hotel where I can plug in my computer, you're functionally obsolete. And then you blink, you blink your eyes, almost blink your eyes. And if those same hotels or similar hotels have wires running in the wall, they're obsolete. Why? Because wireless came on the scene and they don't need those wires in the walls anymore. External obsolescence. What is that? Well, it's something that is outside the boundaries of what you own. So it's the neighbor or the next door neighbor or the property across the street or the view or proximity to something. Maybe you back to the landfill. Is that a problem? Maybe you're on a, a busy street. Is that automatically external obsolescence? No, you have to study the market. You have to get a, a, a sense of the pulse of the typical market participant, whether or not they 
think that as a negative issue. And again, depending on the scarcity and supply and demand, maybe it's not an issue. Maybe, maybe backing to the bypass is normally a negative, but in today's climate is not. They're willing, they're more forgiving of that. What if it banks to a cemetery? Is is that a problem? Don't know. You've you've got to analyze the actions of that typical market participant. You know, for me, it, I'd have quiet neighbors. <laughs> it wouldn't bother me at all. But some people may be creeped out by that. Oh, gosh, it's scary, right? So what does the typical market participant think? Now, there's ways you can do that. You could take a poll, do a market survey. I mean, what better way to find out what the opinion of market participants than to simply ask them? So you could do surveys of market participants. You can do um, surveys. Of, we call those primary market participants if they were a buyer or seller, right? Um, but you can also survey secondary market participants, and that would be the agents involved or maybe even other appraisers, brokers. These are secondary market participants, and you can, you can survey those folks. Finally, with external, you also have economic. And um, that's also things that you can't control um, outside your property uh, boundaries that could have some sort of impact on your value. And sometimes this is like a, a major employer announces they're closing or relocating their business. You know, U.S. Bank is, is I think, the second biggest employer in my town. Imagine if they decided to close up their headquarters here and move to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. They thought about doing that at one time. That'd be a huge economic blow to my community. Or I always use this as an example. Uh, if you're in Clarksville, Tennessee, and, and they announce tomorrow Fort Campbell is closing its doors, what do you think would happen to the housing stock in that location? I mean, you'd have tons of houses going up for sale the next day. And so then you would have an oversupply. You have an oversupply of what's going to happen likely to prices, right? And then finally, I just want to touch on this very quickly. Uh, these types of depreciation, functional, external, and I'm throwing economic in with that one, okay? Um, are they considered curable or incurable? And that really depends. First of all, external, you're not going to cure that. How are you going to cure that? You, you, you don't own it. You don't control it. I guess if it was your neighbor, maybe you could buy them out. <laughs> uh, maybe you could uh, file a lawsuit for a noise complaint. And if you had some success there, maybe you could force them to do something. But uh, typically, the external obsolescence is incurable. You can't fix that. But what about functional obsolescence? Remember the house that had five bedrooms and only one bath? Well, we can put, a new, put another bathroom in there. We've got a big walk-in closet. Let's make that a bathroom. Just because you have the space to put another bathroom in there doesn't in and of itself make that curable. It's all about dollars and cents, ladies and gentlemen. What does an investor want when they make an investment? If I loan you, I'm not going to give you, <laughs> as my listener, if I, if I loan you a $100 bill, what do I want back? 
well, number, number one, I want my hundred dollars back. And then number two is my, my good buddy, John Zambrano used to say, I want a little juice. <laughs> give, me, give me a little juice on that. Okay. So two things, an investor, a prudent investor wants back their investment. And then in addition to their investment, they want to return on. So they want a return of their investment. A return of would be getting my $100 back. And a return on me lending you that $100 would be whatever juice I get from you. Okay. So the same premise can be used for your gauge of curable or incurable. If I'm going to make a capital expenditure of $10,000 to add that second bath, well, what does it contribute? What's the added value, right? So if I put $10,000 in there to, to get my second bath and it only contributes an additional $5,000, I'm upside down. I've lost money. And therefore, it would that functional obsolescence would still be considered incurable. If I make a capital expenditure of $10,000 and it gives me a return, now it adds $15,000 or $12,000, that's curable because I'm getting more than what I'm spending, okay? And then finally, what if I make a capital expenditure of $10,000 and it contributes $10,000? I haven't lost anything, right? Is that curable or incurable? Guys, that's still incurable. Because remember, if I loaned you my $100, yes, I want that back. But why would I do that if I'm just getting that back? I need to get that juice, okay? So capital expenditure of $10,000, a contribution of $10,000, that's still incurable. External functional economic obsolescence. We call it obsolescence because it's not deterioration. It is a measure of what the market is doing, what the typical market participant thinks and how they react to this issue. You guys have been listening to the Appraisal Update Podcast. I'm Brian Reynolds, your host. Until next time, happy appraising. The Appraisal Update Podcast is brought to you by Appraiser E-Learning. 